Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, Americans will celebrate Veterans Day. Our correspondent speaks to disabled soldiers at one of the country's most advanced military hospitals and ends up wondering why so many Americans feel disengaged from the country's wars and its veterans. And there's a simple, cheap, pollution-free way to get around Dhaka, Bangladesh's capital, the cycle rickshaw. There could be as many as a million of them plying Dhaka's streets. So why is the government trying to phase them out? But first... Bolivia doesn't have a leader. Yesterday, Evo Morales, who's been in power for 14 years, resigned as president. There have been weeks of protests throughout the country. In Santa Cruz, Bolivia's biggest city, citizens have barricaded hundreds of intersections, hoping to paralyze the city and starve the government of revenue. Mr. Morales claimed victory in a tight election last month amid claims of electoral fiddling. After the vote count was unexpectedly paused for a day, Mr. Morales emerged, curiously, as the outright winner. On Saturday, observers from the Organization of American States confirmed irregularities in the poll, including doctored tally sheets and computer breaches. Mr. Morales bowed to the OAS recommendation of calling new elections, but that did nothing to quell the protests. Later in the day, he stepped down, prompting cheers from opposition protesters and an explosion of violence. Supporters of Mr. Morales burnt houses, businesses, and buses. The opposition candidate, Carlos Mesa, said that Mr. Morales shouldn't run for office again. Evo Morales and Álvaro García Linera in the eyes of many, Mr. Morales shouldn't have even been a candidate last month. Three years ago, he ignored the results of a referendum that would have precluded another term. In fighting to stay in power, he may have irrevocably tarnished his legacy. Yesterday was an incredibly intense day. It started with Evo Morales announcing that he would call new elections. Sarah Maslin is our Brazil correspondent and has been reporting from Bolivia. But Evo's announcement didn't stop the protests and his support really began to die out. Um, Some of the ministers and legislators from his party started resigning en masse and the police had already started to join the opposition protesters And finally, uh, in the afternoon, the commander of the armed forces gave a televised interview when 
he urged Evo Morales to step down, and it was shortly after that that he made the announcement. In his resignation speech, Evo Morales tried to paint this as a coup. He called it a civic, political, and police coup. And, and what's, what's your view of that, though? Do you, do you think it, it amounts to a coup? So this wasn't a coup in the sense of the military going in and, and taking power from a president. Um, Evo Morales did resign. What is going to be really telling is what happens next, um, because not only Morales resigned, but also uh, a whole bunch of his cabinet ministers, his vice president and the presidents of both houses of Congress. It's really unclear who's now in charge in Bolivia and the reactions of the opposition leaders, both the opposition candidate, Carlos Mesa, and the leader of much of the strikes in the last few weeks, a guy named Luis Fernando Camacho, will be really important um, in terms of figuring out exactly what happened yesterday and what happens next in Bolivia. Well, you spoke with Mr. Camacho before this weekend's events. What did he say about what he wanted to happen? And how do you think this figures into his vision for Bolivia? When I spoke to Mr. Camacho, he said that this was a question of democracy and that Bolivians were sick of having had their vote stolen twice. Um, Eva Morales ignored the constitution and the results of a referendum three years ago that asked whether he should be allowed to run for a fourth term. And for a lot of these people going out and protesting against this election, it really seemed like the end of democracy. So that's what they're saying. Um, of course, now you've got Evo Morales saying that um, the real people responsible for ending democracy are those who have forced him to resign. So it's a really tricky situation. But it's not just these civic strikers and opposition types who are on the streets. There's plenty of support still for, for Mr. Morales. Isn't that right? That's right. And it's worth remembering that Evo Morales did come in ahead of the opposition candidate, though what's unclear is with what margin. Evo Morales was Bolivia's first indigenous president. During his three terms as president, poverty rates fell drastically thanks to redistribution programs. And he really did a lot to help the political and social situation of indigenous Bolivians. In his resignation speech, Evo Morales said that he was being forced out because he was indigenous and a union leader and a coca farmer. And his supporters have always said that the opposition to Evo is about racism and elitism. That has been true in the past, but at this point, you really see a critical mass of Bolivians taking to the streets, including indigenous people and including poor people. And they're indignant about the fact that they think that their vote has been stolen. So I would say that the opposition to Evo at this point is much more about fury, about Evo having stolen the election than it is about racism. And and what about getting out of this mess? You say uh, for the moment it's not clear who's in power, but what is clear is that someone will have to be elected there, right? Another another election is coming. How, how do you think that will play out? Bolivia really needs to hold new elections as soon as possible. Right now, there's no one in charge, and it's not even clear how someone could become in charge because all of 
the main people who normally make politics work have resigned. Some foreign governments are trying to help pacify the situation. The foreign secretary of Mexico offered asylum to about 20 members of Evo Morales' party, many of whom were being threatened by supporters from the opposition. But Evo Morales himself has said he plans to stay in the country, and his speech made it seem like this isn't the last we're going to hear from him. Meanwhile, these violent protests are continuing, and it's really unclear whether the police and the army are going to play a helpful role in quelling the protests or whether they're just going to stand by and let them happen. So if, in fact, this is the end of Mr. Morales's presence in Bolivian politics, what do you, what do you think his legacy will be? These weeks of violent protests and the allegations of fraud in the election have really cast a shadow on all of the good things that Evo Morales's presidency brought to Bolivia. No matter what, though, the next president is going to have a lot of work to do to try to continue the gains in terms of poverty reduction and social equality, and most importantly, to bring these different sectors of society together at a moment when people are really furious at each other and at the different political leaders. So Bolivia's got a really rough time ahead. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 9-11, America has deployed more than two and a half million troops to Iraq and Afghanistan. And though its involvement in the Middle East has been winding down, it still retains somewhere between 60,000 and 70,000 soldiers in the region. But many of those who fought abroad say when they come home, they feel a lack of connection and understanding about their experiences. Among them, some of the 2,000 or so veterans who have returned as amputees. Walter Reed, which is actually just up the road from where I live, is the main tri-service medical hospital and research facility for severely wounded American service men and women. James Astle writes Lexington, our column about U.S. politics, and is based in Washington. So those American troops who were badly smashed up and are still being badly smashed up on the battlefield in Afghanistan and Iraq are likely to pass through Walter Reed at some point. And uh, I went there to confront the severity of their injuries to bring the battlefield home, I guess, but also to get some sense of their outlook on the America that they came back to and how they've been received by society as very badly wounded American servicemen. And who did you meet when you were there? The first wounded soldier I met was Staff Sergeant retired Liam Dwyer, who was a Marine sergeant who'd served in Iraq in his first deployment of the 9-11 wars. And I enjoyed what I did. I loved what I did. And then he'd 
been deployed to Afghanistan, to Sangin, Helmand province. Very first patrol was, wow, this is completely different. One of the fiercest battles of southern Afghanistan that was in 2011. A few firefights that day was like, holy shit, like we're in it now. He suffered his wounds whilst conducting a search of a traditional Afghan home. And as soon as I went on the compound, like my spidey senses went off. And we immediately found a, a chai set, a tea set. And the tea was in the, the little cups. It was still warm. We had cleared it. We were on our way out the same way we came in. And I stepped on it. A hardened mud floor. You now they had dug it up, put the pressure plate in there, and then covered it back up. And I can remember looking down in this arm. The right arm is missing from two inches below the elbow. I can feel this part of the arm just dangling underneath me. My legs were out at 90 degrees or slightly behind me. I'm looking at myself and I'm bleeding out and I'm about to die. And I wake up a few minutes later. They're working on me. They got tourniquets in all four limbs. And one of the guys grabbed me and said something like, hey, we got you, man. You're going to be okay or something like that. And I, I go out. And the next thing I know is I'm waking up here. First of all, I have to say, because it was a humbling experience to, to meet him and to, to hear this from him, he is a man of extraordinary positivity, incredibly upbeat. No doubt that's helped him to make the, in the end, remarkable recovery that he's made. He has a prosthetic right leg. He has a still problematic and painful left leg. Uh, and his arms are restricted in their movements, and he's a racing driver. I'm Marine Staff Sergeant Liam Dwyer, and I drive for Freedom Autosports, Mazda Race Team. Driving a regular car, albeit that he has some specialisms to the prosthetic limb that he wears when he drives that car. He's married to a, a therapist that he met at Walter Reed. He's living an extraordinary life. How has it been for Sergeant Dwyer to, to sort of reintegrate into society after an experience like that? He describes a situation which I've heard from a number of returnees from America's long wars, both wounded and mercifully not wounded, that, you know, tremendous goodwill and respect from American society, but actually very little knowledge of the wars that they were fighting in and not much deep interest in those wars or their experiences there. Some people describe it as, as a level of engagement, which is sort of a mile wide, but an inch deep. I think Dwyer feels that quite strongly. He's, he sort of wants to be respectful. He understands that there's great goodwill to American services and respect for his own sacrifice. You got Walter Reed here. So it's very common to see an amputee guy with PTS here. But you go back home and... You'll get the warm welcome home party, and then six weeks later, no one cares about you. But I think he's found it frustrating at times how easily that interest and goodwill is sort of turned off. Why do you think it is that the American people seem disengaged from these wars? Well, I think in Vietnam, America suffered over 50,000 dead soldiers. That had a massive political impact. It forced society to make a decision about the war uh, and put major policy-changing pressure on its government, basically forcing the administration at the time 
to end America's involvement in the Vietnam War. We've seen nothing like that kind of political engagement simply because American society has not felt harmed by those wars. The casualty numbers are low. American society has not paid for those wars. It's deferred the cost. They'll be paid for by future generations. So American society, notwithstanding its strong goodwill towards its servicemen and women, and especially towards those who've made sacrifices in the wars, just has not been politically switched on and engaged to these wars because it has not felt the impact of them in the round. Americans broadly haven't felt the, the sort of the costs, the human costs or the, or the monetary costs of these wars, and yet there has been quite a lot of talk, in particular from the current administration, about, about ending them. And, and yet you say it, it, it sort of um, Americans don't feel specifically connected to them. I mean, how do you sort of square that? How, how do you think the involvement in war and the costs of war figure into the, the nation's politics these days? So I, I think it's, it's remarkable how little success President Donald Trump has had in trying to change the politics of these wars. We know that the president himself thinks that they're unproductive, wasteful, even a waste of time, and he wants to end America's involvement in the Middle East and elsewhere. But he's changed politics on these issues, including in his, his own party, remarkably little. And that's because, again, America is just not on a popular level engaged with these wars in the first place. And Mr. Trump will be in New York City today for the Veterans Day Parade. Do you have any idea what Sergeant Dwyer will be doing? I think I know what Sergeant Dwyer would like to be doing. He'd like to be uh, in his racing car, racing around a, a track, going as fast as he can and soaking up the, the applause of the, of the crowd. He loves doing that. Uh, I suspect that he is either in or very near Walter Reed, uh, finishing off the treatment from his latest operation. But what an extraordinarily positive attitude he has to his, his long battles with, with treatment and his health. James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. transport that's pollution-free, cheap, and provides employment to hundreds of thousands of people. In Bangladesh, rickshaws are central to getting around. But in its capital, Dhaka, the government is cracking down on the cycle taxis. Rickshaws are the most popular form of transport in Dhaka. They account for around 40% of all the trips that take place. Susanna Savage writes about Bangladesh for The Economist. There's somewhere between 600,000 and a million of them. Everyone uses rickshaws every day. Cycle rickshaws are being phased out in Dhaka. The two city corporations, they've banned rickshaws on three main roads. There are plans ultimately to leave them just the small roads, which are pretty much just for pedestrians. They're very narrow. So why are the city governments trying to get rid of them? Dhaka has a huge traffic problem. The speed of traffic has fallen from 21 kilometers per hour in 2008 to just 7 kilometers last year. So it can take hours to get anywhere, even a short distance. And rickshaws are particularly troublesome because they're slow moving and they're highly maneuverable. So they can turn around in the middle of the road and this creates chaos. So this is why they've been targeted as one of the main issues and one of the things that need to be changed in order to remedy Dhaka's traffic problem. So rickshaws are the core of the traffic problem? Well, I'm not so sure about that. I think rickshaws 
caused some of the traffic problem. But also Dhaka has a real problem with a lack of public transport and a growing number of private cars. There's only around 300,000 private cars at the moment, but the numbers are really rapidly increasing, particularly as people in Dhaka become wealthier as the country moves from low to middle income. So the plan is then to to phase them out altogether. How's that going down with the rickshaw drivers themselves? Well, so they banned rickshaws from three main roads, and then there were some announcements made that they plan to phase rickshaws out altogether. Other people have said that they plan to remove rickshaws from the main roads, but they'll still be allowed to operate on the very small roads, the roads that are more pedestrian. But rickshaw pullers were not happy about this. They launched a huge protest. They brought DACA to a standstill, blocking several of the main roads. And they had a lot of support in this because for every rickshaw puller, there's a rickshaw owner, a rickshaw maker, repair worker, spare parts trader. This is a huge industry. It employs a lot of people in Dhaka and in Bangladesh. And obviously you have a lot of public support because people use rickshaws all the time and they're one of the most affordable forms of transport, especially when there's a real lack of, of public transport like buses. Is removing some of them or all of them really going to solve Dhaka's problems? I think it could solve some Immediate problems on some of the larger roads, it might speed up traffic on those roads, but ultimately Dhaka needs to improve its public transport in order to solve the traffic problem. At the moment, a metro rail is under construction, but it's only estimated it will account for about 12% of all the journeys. It's estimated that the tickets will cost around 50 taka, which for some people, for example, garment workers, that's a large proportion of their daily wage. So that would just be unaffordable for them. The main way that DACA can alleviate its traffic problem is by encouraging people to give up their chauffeur-driven, air-conditioned cars. That's a difficult task. Nevertheless, you'll be trying to take some rickshaw rides while you still can? Yes, I'll be taking many rickshaw rides. Susanna, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.